Thank you, ladies, for sharing your gifts with us. And thank you in the booth back there for sharing your gift and making this uh, work. Thank you for everybody that's here tonight, and thank you for everybody joining online. A lot of thank yous. Um, so we're going to be in the book of Esther, and we're going to do chapters 5 and 6. And as we've said a few times, that the word prayer or prayer is not mentioned in, the bio, in um, this book. So let us start with some prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord, we just, uh, we love you, we praise you, we thank you that you are the one true living God. We thank you, Lord, that you give us the example of how you are in every aspect of our lives, that you are working behind the scenes, even when we don't realize it, when we think that you're just absent, but you are always there. And I just thank you that you're long-suffering with us, with our, or us, me, our little faith, my little faith, and Lord, when I get frustrated, and I uh, lose sight of, of your timing, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that you will uh, speak to us tonight, that you will reveal yourself a little more intimately to us, and we will walk out of here knowing you a little better tonight. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, come on in. Come on. Um, I debated on everybody, making everybody move up to the first three rows, but I'm going to let you all stay scattered, so... That's fine. Uh, just a brief recap of uh, what we've covered so far in the book of Esther. Um, we were introduced to King Ahasuerus. We're probably going to get multi-pronunciations on that name. I might slip to Xerxes if I start stumbling over Ahasuerus, and we know that's the same fella, so forgive me with that. But we're introduced to this king. He's in charge of the Medo-Persian Empire. It's a huge empire. It covers a lot of the earth. There's a lot of people in it. He's very wealthy. But he's kind of a little, he has a temper. Let's just put it that way. Um, so we're introduced to him, and he kind of gets miffed at his queen that he had, Queen Vashti, and dismisses her. He made what we can surmise as a request that he shouldn't have requested, and she rightly refused, and he dismissed her, put her away. We're not quite sure what happened, but she is no longer on the scene. He is uh, angry with the Greeks because they beat up his father in war, and it's just playing on his mind, so he's putting together this great big army to go, and I believe that's what, the, when we're introduced in um, the second chapter, that's kind of, uh, or the first chapter, I'm sorry, he's got all his kingdom in, and he's trying to put together this army because he wants to go after the Greeks. Uh, to avenge his father and to, to do that. And he goes off, and it doesn't work. He gets beat. He comes back, and he's sitting in the palace one day, and he says, wow, I'm kind of lonely. Oh, yeah, Queen Vashti's gone. And his, his wise advisors who kind of advised him to dismiss Vashti, they say, well, hey, bring all the babes that are in your kingdom to here. Let's prepare them for a year, and you pick the one you like. And he's like, all right, I like that. That sounds good to me. So we go through the process, and Esther comes before him, and he finds, she finds favor in his eyes. And I personally think that God was directing his heart toward Esther, but I also think that he, he liked Esther. And it turns out he fell in love with her, and he loves her, as we're, we're going to talk about a little bit in chapter 2. So I think God directed him, but I think it was his choice that he chose Esther at God's prompting. And we go through, and we're introduced to Mordecai. Um, gosh. Is he Esther's cousin? I believe it's her cousin. But he raised her pretty much um, as his daughter. He, we're introduced to him. 
He has a position of power because he's sitting in the king's gate. And he discovers a plot to overthrow the king, and he presents it to Esther. Esther tells it to the king. They investigate, and then it just kind of stops. Wait a minute. What's up with that? You know, Persian kings were known for rewarding loyalty very richly, and they they lavished people with things because they wanted to show that as an example so other people would be loyal to them and not try to overthrow them, but we're just kind of throwing this out there and it just kind of stops. And it's always like a disconnect, and we don't get any, there's no indication in the Bible that Mordecai is kind of like, well, what's the point? I mean, I, I risked my life to uncover this coup and I found out about it and I revealed it. What's in it for me? I didn't get anything out of it. I'm still, we don't have any of that. And that speaks to Mordecai. It shows us a little bit of what kind of person Mordecai is. So then we go to chapter four and Pastor Jonathan taught and I thought he did a great job of describing what has happened because we're also introduced to a character named Haman. And again, we're, we find where we meet Haman right after the plot that Mordecai discovered is revealed and Haman all of a sudden is elevated to second in command, the prime minister. But what happened to Mordecai? But Haman's in place and he just, for whatever reason, I think it's the spirit of the Antichrist, which we'll talk about a little bit, that has got a hold of him because he hates Mordecai and he hates the Jews and he comes up with a scheme to eradicate the Jews. And he presents it to the king. The king says, okay, that sounds good. You go ahead and do it. And so chapter four, Jonathan, again, painted a, a very vivid picture of what it must have been like for him to realize that within a year, we're gone. And he, he, he goes through and he, he mourns and he, he um, talks to Esther. But I think he eventually remembers that his God is a covenant-keeping God. And God's not going to break his covenant, no matter what it looks like. And, and it's a little bit, it almost kind of sounds fatalistic in some of the wording of Esther and Mordecai at the end of the chapter because he kind of says, well, no matter what, God's going to save his people. Even if your family, which he's part of her family, they may not survive. So it's not really fatalistic, I don't think. I think it's just he's like, God's got his own plans. He's not going to break his covenant, and he's going to save his people. Now, whether I individually am not part of that group that's get saved, I don't know. But, and then Esther, she, she thinks about it and she, I think she prays, even though it's not specifically mentioned in here. Um, and she comes again, it almost sounds fatalistic. Well, if I perish, I perish. But again, I think she's just resigned. Resigned is a bad word. She has given in to God's will and trusted him completely with the situation and with her life and everything that's going on. So Mordecai wants her to go in and talk to the king unannounced. And she's kind of, it reminded me of Moses a little bit, how Moses kind of argued with God about him being sent. And she's like, well, the king hadn't talked to me in 30 days, and you know I can get killed if I go in there. And you've seen that big guy with a sword standing by his throne for the people that walk in. And if they come in unannounced, and she's, finally she just says, okay. <laughs> she says, I'll do it. Fast, have everybody fast for me. And we pick up with chapter five here. So let's start in chapter five. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. Now, one thing I just want to point out is again, you know, Esther is taking her life into her hands to go do this because we've 
seen examples of, of the king's a little hot-tempered. You know, he might have been in a bad mood. Maybe somebody gave him three lumps of sugar in his coffee instead of two, and he's in a bad mood this day, and so Esther shows up, and he's just like, oh, this is, this is crazy. I can't believe somebody gave me decaf instead of caffeinated. What's going on here? You know, so maybe he's having a bad day, but she goes, and I think she specifically puts on, because it says, her royal robes for a purpose. And I think that it's to remind the king that she's the queen. That she has a little bit of some, some pull here a little bit because she is the queen. That he put her in place when he chose her, so she is the queen. I think also it is to maybe remind her, might remind him a little bit of when he was looking at all these other babes and he picked her out. You know, and she's like, hey, there's a reason you picked me. I got it going on. So let's, 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 let's. And you know, they, they have been married a little while, so there might be a little bit of a, some, you know, like, you know, husband and wives, they're kind of like, he's, oh. So anyway, I, I don't know, speculation, but, you know, husbands and wives, they have their own little sign language and nuances and things, so maybe a little bit of that. I'm not sure. Let's go on to um, chapter verse 2. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that he found favor, that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. So again, this is protocol. She goes in and she's very respectful. She doesn't just walk right in, but she gets in his sight and she waits for him to see if he'll hold out the scepter, which is the sign of the acceptance, which was protocol. She goes in and she touches the top of the scepter. And again, that's very respectful protocol. Basically is saying, okay, come on in, we can talk. Um, let's go to verse three. And the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So again, this is a little bit of an idiom. Um, I don't know, maybe she had asked for half the kingdom. He would have given it to her. I'm not sure, but I think it's more of a way for him to say, I'm taking you seriously. What do you have? More than likely, you're going to get the answer that you want to hear. I will grant your request. This is something very magnanimous on the king's part. And again, I think he's a little smitten. You know, maybe he's reminded a little bit of, there's, there's a reason why I did pick this lady. She's, she's pretty smart. She's, she's nice looking. Um... She's respectful, so let me come in. And I, I do want to point out, again, I do think that God prompted King Ahasuerus to pick Esther, but I also think it was his choice. But we know in Proverbs 21.1, let me turn there real quick, and I hope it's up there. Yep. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers, like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So again, you know, King Ahasuerus, just like any king or any of us, you know, we have our own plans, but God directs our steps. That's another one I didn't put up there. But, you know, specifically he's talking about kings in that proverb, and we have a king here. So this man who is so powerful, he still is being guided by God, even a non-believing king. So God still got his hand on him and kind of moving around here and, and getting, him, getting him moving where he wants him to. And I also would like to go back and let's revisit um, in chapter 2, uh, 17 and 18. 
And let me find that here. And the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the Feast of Esther. She even had a feast named after her. That's cool. For all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. So again, I just wanted to bring that out that I think Esther's trying to prompt him to maybe remember a little bit of that day when he saw her for the first time and he chose her as her queen when she goes before him, kind of stacking the deck a little bit. And you ladies know how to do that because you know how us guys tick. Don't deny it. I see these ladies smiling, so you guys know. Y'all know. You ladies know, sorry. Um, so let's move on. Verse 4. We'll look at verse 4 and 5. So Esther answered, if it pleases the king, so she defers to the king. She doesn't just blurt out what she's wanting. She says, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman, interesting, come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the, queen, so the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So a few little interesting things I'll kind of want to point out here that Esther is showing great wisdom because she's in the court, the king's court, and he's not alone. There's other people in there, and she doesn't just want to spill the beans like, well, that jerk over there that you hired, he's trying to kill my whole race. She doesn't say that in front of everybody because there's other people listening. And no doubt, I don't know if Haman was actually there because it does say in verse 5, the king says, bring Haman quickly. So I don't know if he had to be called from somewhere else if he was there. But no doubt there were people in the court that were loyal to Haman, and Esther didn't want that to be known widely. So she shows wisdom, and she also is kind of trying not maybe to show up the king because he chose this Haman guy, and now you know there's all this mess that's happened from it. So she shows great wisdom and restraint even. If it's me, I've, you guys know, I, I, what does Victor always say? You can't hold water, I can't either. I'd been like, hey, king, come on. We got to get this settled it's right here. Um, but she doesn't do that. So, good for her. Uh, let's go to six, we'll read verses six through eight. And there's something really, really significant here. Um, verse six, at the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request of the half the kingdom? It shall be done. So again, um, he, he's, telling her this in a colloquial way that, hey, I'm paying attention, I'm listening, you're, you're, whatever you ask for, you're probably going to get. So Esther said, then in verse 7, then Esther answered and said, my petition and request is this, and some of your translations may have a semicolon, I have a colon in mine, whatever you have in there in the English, that indicates that there was a pause in her speech, it wasn't a smooth sentence, she kind of stops and pauses here. And then she replies, verse eight, if I have found favor in the sight of the king and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, so again, she defers to the king, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So I wanna back up a little bit. I found it interesting that when she invited the king, because obviously she wanted some privacy with the king to make this request of, of him, that she invited Haman. Now, I don't know 
You can speculate as to why she did that. A couple of reasons I could think of is maybe it was protocol. He is the second in command. You know, if you invite the king to a secret meeting, maybe he has to be there. That was Persian law. I don't know. Um, it could be that <laughs> she was hoping for some swift justice, that she would tell the king what was going on. Haman was there, and he'd just take him out right then and there. You know, there would be no delay. I, I don't know. Um, and you can think of your own reasons or come up with speculations. Um, obviously, I think, ultimately, God prompted her to ask him for whatever reason, if it was some kind of earthly reason or something. But he's invited to this. And again, when we get to verse 7, and I said there is this indication that she paused, and when she was speaking, and some people want to say, oh, my goodness, she chickened out. She had her chance, and she, no, 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 no. Or she got nervous, and she just, no, no, no. I think it was God wanting her to present this to the king to reveal what's going on, but not at that time. Because we're going to read in chapter 6, there are a lot of divine coincidences that happen in this 24-hour period that she pauses because she doesn't give her real request at this first dinner. I think God, again, he's behind the scenes, he's working, and it was his perfect timing that she didn't ask right then because these other things needed to happen first as part of his plan. So just keep that in mind. Um, it, I, I, I just, and there was another possibility that, you know, maybe the dinner was not going well and the king's mood had changed. And <laughs> she's like, ooh, wait a minute, I better not do this, but no, no, I still just think it was God's prompting telling her this is not the right time to ask your real request. So she invites him to a second dinner. Verse nine, so, so Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. So he's like, yeah, great, he's a megalomaniac anyway. He said, man, I'm second in command, I'm wealthy beyond measure, I can have any babe I want, I got my choice of Rolls Royce chariots and the finest horses in the kingdom, and I'm right here. He's on top of the world, and I just had dinner with the king and queen, and nobody else did, and she invited me back again. So he's walking out, and he's on top of the world. The rest of the verse, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he, Mordecai, did not stand or tremble before him, Haman, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Have y'all ever known people? I know people. Nobody here in this room. So. They're just not happy. No matter what they have or what's going on, they are not happy unless they're, they're happy, but only when they're complaining about something. I, I just, I mean, and I get it. It's, it's easy. I can understand that. But it's just, Sometimes you just got to be happy. You know, things are good. Life is too short to be always complaining and unhappy. So look at Mordecai. He has everything from a worldly perspective that you could want because this one person won't acknowledge him or honor him. He just, it just ruins his whole day and nothing else matters. Nothing is good enough. So please, let us not do that and... I debated on doing this, but I'll do it anyway. Maybe reveal a little bit about myself. I think uh, the show Frasier is the best TV show that's ever been on the air. If you 
disagree, well, I'll pray for you. Uh, but anyway, I love that show and I love that character. But there was one episode, and I saw it just recently um, before I was preparing this, and he was, he was a radio host, if you don't know. He's a psychiatrist, and he has a talk show on the radio, and they were doing a, a panel that had 12 people in a room and they were asking him about the show, asking them about his show, and he was list, watching on some uh, two, two-way glass, and out of the 11 of the people thought he was great and loved it. And he's like, ah, great. And there's this one guy, he was real quiet, and they're like, well, why aren't you saying much? Oh, I don't want to say. He's like, no, 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 what's up? He's like, oh, I, I just don't, I don't like the show that much. And Well, why not? Well, I just don't like him. He's a smarty pants. And Frazier just went ballistic, you know. It didn't matter that the other 11 people loved him, and one of the people's like, ooh, I'm even going to start listening to the show now because this one person, sorry, um, I messed up my leg yesterday, so I, I need to quit moving around. <laughs> Squirrel. Uh, you know, he was, he was just unhappy, even though these other 11 people just thought he was great. So Mordecai's got, a, I mean, Mordecai, sorry, Haman's got a little bit of this going on because apparently there's a lot of people that, that like him for whatever reasons, but this one person just, just, Mordecai is living rent-free in Haman's head. He just can't, can't get past it, you know. He's, he's just, he's beside himself because of this one guy, despite everything else that's going on. So, verse 10, so Haman did show a little restraint. I'll give him credit for that. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. So, you know, it's kind of, I, I'm... I'm married now, thankfully, to an amazing, wonderful woman. And there are times when I have a rough day at work, and I'm kind of like, oh, good, I get to go home and see Joanna. So I, 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 I get it. He wants to go see his wife and hang out with some of his friends. But he's just wanting a little back, pat, back padding here because he's just got Haman. I mean, Mordecai's in his head, and he needs a little refresher of how great he is. So he's going to brag, and he's going to hope these people are um, going to come alongside him and agree with him. So then Haman told them, the people he invited, of his great riches. So again, I want you to look at this. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children. And we actually, if you will look at um, Esther chapter 9, verse 10, the 10 sons of Haman, the sons of and. Anyway, they get killed, but that's not germane to this study. He has 10 sons, which is a sign of virility and a sign of just being a man's man in this culture. So he's saying, he told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. So he's a lot of me, 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 and I, I, I. You know, he's all about Haman. He doesn't really, and he wants everybody to know it. He wants that acknowledgement. He wants everybody to come alongside him and say, yeah, you're, the, you're great. You're awesome. And most megalomaniacs do. Yeah, I'm not going to mention that. Um, so anyway, we got this going on at this party. And, you know, and, and again, if you've, if you've been around people that they need a lot of backpacking, I don't know if they were doing it, but I imagine there was a lot of eye rolling going on as he was speaking. Because you're like, oh gosh, really again? We got to hear this again. Yeah, yeah, you're great, awesome. All right, whatever. All right, so anyway. Um, Verse 12, moreover, again, some more of me. Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me, 
to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. So he's got it going on. He's a mover and a shaker. He's second in command, probably the second wealthiest man in the world at this point, the most, second most powerful man in the world at this point, and he's having exclusive one-on-one lunches with the king and queen. So he is, he's the toast of the town. He's the guy. Even though he's not happy because of Haman, as we'll find out, because verse 13, yet all this avails me nothing. Poor Haman. As long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, I mean, I, I just, come on, man, just, it's just one dude. Just, just, just walk by, but he doesn't, he can't. And again, I think this is God kind of getting in his crawl and a little bit of the spirit of the Antichrist uh, entering into his life and directing him a little bit here because we know Satan has his machinations and, and God thwarts him and he's always gonna thwart him because Satan has no chance even though he doesn't know it. But it's an interesting thing that happens. Verse 14 then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, I just imagine after, like, wow, honey, I knew there was a reason I married you. You're a girl after my own heart. Uh, Let a gallows be made 50 cubits high, so that's about 75 feet high, in the morning, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. Wow. What a, what a lady, what friends, you know, just murder this guy for just because you don't like him and he won't rise up to you. And just, just in case you don't know, a gallows is not where they would put a rope on it. It's a great big skewer and they would impale you on it. So he's going to be hanging on a skewer 75 feet up for everybody to see. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure Haman's probably thinking, oh, okay, I can wake up in the morning, I'll go get my coffee and look out the window. Oh, yeah, there's, there's Mordecai. Cool. It's a good day. I can go off to work, so. And the thing pleased him. The thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. And that's the end of verse, or chapter five. So a lot going on here. Some interesting stuff, a um, little bit of some character study things. But I do want to, as we pick up with chapter six, this is where we see why it was a check in Esther's spirit between seven and eight that she didn't chicken out and make her request. It was because of God's prompting for her not to make her true request at that time. So let's move on to chapter 6. Just so happens, 6-1, that night the king could not sleep. Out of all the nights that he couldn't sleep, it happened to be this night. So one was commanded to bring the books of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now the Persians had very detailed historical records. And this guy's been in power for about 12 years up to this point. So it's interesting. He couldn't sleep and he didn't ask for wine. Maybe a little red will get me a little sleepy. Didn't ask for a masseur or a masseuse to come in and rub his shoulders and relieve some of the tension, help him relax. He didn't ask for a hot bath to be drawn to, you know, sit in some bath salts and, and relax. Uh, He didn't ask for anything, but he asked for the Chronicles to be read. History. And some history puts me to sleep too, so I can kind of see why he may have asked for that. But out of all the 12 years that they (laughs) could have read, verse 2, and it was found written that Mordecai had told Abigthana 
and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So again, if you remember, we talked about at, um, earlier, and I believe it was in chapter 2, verse 21 through 23, and forgive me, I think I said chapter 3 earlier, but let's look at these, these verses. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Big Than and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, so they got skewered, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And again, like I said, it's just a disconnect. You don't, we don't hear anything about Mordecai, a reward or anything, and it's not recorded in the history, apparently, as we're going to find out that nothing was done for him. And we know, as I mentioned earlier, Persian kings love to reward loyalty and things. So Mordecai got nothing. <clears throat> Verse three, then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And they probably think, well, you picked Haman and raised him up instead of Mordecai. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's what they're thinking. But, you know, that's, that seems to be kind of what happened is, for whatever reason, Mordecai has come into power next to King Ahasuerus. So let's, let's um, as I mentioned a few times um, about the spirit of the Antichrist, let's just go ahead and look at uh, the chapter, 1 John, um, chapter 4, verse 3, and let's look at that verse just to kind of preface and as we dig into this. And 1 John 4.3 says, and this again is John, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and this is pertaining to our study tonight, and is now already in the world. So we know that the Antichrist true antichrist, the spirit is going to inhabit him because he's going to give himself fully to Satan. In Revelation, we're told about that, and that's when he's going to be revealed. But the spirit of antichrist, I would submit to you, has been in the world since the beginning. And we'll talk about a few examples, and you guys can probably think of a few more examples uh, of this, but these were just some of the few I picked out. And again, I know we're in the Old Testament, and John was New Testament, but he did say the spirit of antichrist was already in the world. And I think we can bear that out because any concerted or focused effort to stop the line of Christ or to wipe out the Jews is always satanic, and Satan is behind it. And I think that is the spirit of the Antichrist moving on people who did that. And you can, you can take your pick. I, the few that I found was in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, where the Satan went in and tempted um, Eve because he was already upset with humanity. Next instance I could think of was Genesis 4-8 with Cain and Abel. As we know, Cain um, slew Abel. And, and then they had Seth, and so the line was continued. Uh, in Genesis 6-4, a very strange bit of verses, but 6-4 talks about the Nephilim. And again, I think that was an effort to wipe out the line of Christ out of humanity. Uh, the next one I could find or thought of was Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. That uh, talks about Nimrod. Nimrod says he became a hunter of men and a mighty hunter before God. And he, 
started Babel, which not only was a physical city, but I think that's when he started the world system that we see still in place today going throughout history. And then the next one I could think of was jumping over to Exodus 1, 15 through 16. That's when Pharaoh told the Jewish midwives to toss all the baby boys into the Nile River. So again, and you can think of more of these, you know, there's a lot more. Those are just kind of where I stopped. It's like, okay, I'm out of time. That's all I can write down. But these are all concerted efforts to stop Christ coming into the world and to wipe out the Jews. And that's what Haman is doing here. He's trying to ultimately stop Christ from coming into the world by wiping out all the Jews. Now, a little bit of a side note, again, my speculation, um, but I think it bears out. You might say, well, okay, well, when Christ went to the cross and he defeated Satan, why did we have things like Hitler and the Inquisition and the Spanish Inquisition trying to wipe out the Jews? I think Satan has said, okay, I couldn't stop Christ from coming into the world, but if I can wipe out the Jews because that's who he is coming back for when he touches down on the earth a second time to set up his thousand-year kingdom. If there's no Jews, then there's no reason for him to come and do that. So that's just my speculation. You can dig into it and talk about it afterwards, but just kind of to tap out a little bit of what we're, we're talking about here. Um, so let's go and let's get back to Esther. And let's start with verse 4. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just, just entered the outer court of the king's palace, we're told why, to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So again, another one of those divine coincidences. Haman's the first guy that shows up on the scene and he's got ill intentions. Um, so the king says, oh, cool. Verse five, the king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Cool. And again, verse six, so Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? While Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than why? More than me. I mean, look at everything he's already done and everything that's happening. It's got to be me that he's wanting to know about this. So we have a revelation here of what Haman's heart's all about. So let's see what he asked for. Verse 7, And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, with a, which has a royal crest placed on its head. So the, the horses actually kind of had little crowns that they wore on their head that they were ridden, ridden by royalty. Verse nine, then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor, then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim, proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So Haman, thinking that he is the one that's going to get honored, this is what he advises the king to do. He doesn't say, oh, well, maybe you ought to let somebody live tax-free for the rest of their life in the kingdom, or you know, maybe you ought to provide them with a governmental job that they can never be fired from, or maybe give them a 50-acre spread right on the river. You know, He doesn't ask for any of this because he had all that. We were told earlier in chapter 5, he was rich and he had all this other stuff. So he's thinking, I want the pomp, I want the circumstance, I want the recognition, I want the fame. 
because he thinks it's going to be him that's going to get this, and that's what he wants. Now, I think, in addition to this is evidence, not only because he's trying to wipe out the Jews, that the, anti, the spirit of the Antichrist is messing with Haman a little bit, but I want to, I want to direct you, so let's look at Isaiah um, chapter 14, verses 13 through 15, and hopefully this is sounding a little familiar because this is actually Satan, or, or Satan, verse 13, God talking to Satan. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Most important thing, I will be like the most high. So we know that's Satan's heart that he wants to be like the most high. And let's look at Haman, who I believe has got a little bit of the spirit of the Antichrist messing with him. He wants to be like the king because he wants to put on the king's robe. He wants to ride the king's horses. He wants to be recognized by people in the king's robe and on the king's horses. I think he wants to be like the king. And that's exactly what we saw with Satan here. So again, if you agree with me, great. If not, I'll pray for you. The Lord will speak to you, give you a little... Uh, little guidance there, but I, I, it's, it's very interesting that, you know, that's what Haman desires most, is that recognition to be like the king. So, take it for what you will. So, verse 10, king thinks this is a great idea. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested. You know, Haman's like, all right, And do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So, you know, he's like, what? Did I hear, what, what? Oh, I'm sure he didn't do that because you don't question the king that you heard him right, but you just, you know he was just crushed. Which, you know, it's all right. Um, but again, this, this speaks of his, um, you know, his heart. And it's just very, again, another one of those coincidences that he was coming in to have Mordecai killed, but now he has to go bestow honor upon Mordecai. Just one of those interesting things that just so happened because Esther paused for a little bit before making her, her real request. Um, but to Haman's credit, he knows that if he doesn't obey the king, he's... So he, he, in verse 11, so Haman took the robe and the horse arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I'm sure that's probably how, that's my interpretation of how he said it. But it's interesting too <laughs> that he has to go out to Mordecai who's sitting in the gate and ask him to stand up who he wouldn't stand up for him before or honor him and array him in the robe that he so much wanted to wear. I find the irony that just is, is it, well, it's divine irony, but, you know, that he, he finally gets Mordecai to stand up before him, but it's not for the reason that he wanted. Um, so let's go to verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. And there's a little bit of a comparison and contrast here in verse 12, because Mordecai, he wasn't, I get the feeling that he's not necessarily the, dog eat dog, step on anybody to get to the top. He's just kind of like, wow, this was weird. Did that really just happen? 
but he's so humble that he doesn't say, hey, I got it made, I'm in the king's, I'm in his side, I can kick back. And he goes back to work. He humbles himself and he goes back to work. And I'm sure there are people like, what was that all about? I don't know, just, just happened, but I'm, I'm here at work. Let's, let's, let's talk about this. Whereas Haman, by contrast, but Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. So I, mean, I guess he was, considering the type of person he was. So he's been, in his own eyes, humiliated, because really he's kind of the only one that knows the humiliation that he just experienced. Because again, Mordecai's living in his head rent-free. So this is his reaction. It's an interesting comparison and contrast between the two of them. Now, one thing that's interesting, I do want to back up and forgive me for uh, not talking about this while we were there. But I found it interesting in verse 10 that when the king tells him to take the horse and the robe and go honor Mordecai, he specifically calls him a Jew. And I was kind of like, well, wait a minute. Didn't he help Haman arrange that the Jews were going to get killed, but he knew Mordecai was a Jew? What's up with this? Well, if we look back a little bit, and we know that Satan is the father of lies, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quit saying it. You know what my, my outlook here on, on Haman is. But if we go to verse 8 of Esther chapter 3, verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. Now, he doesn't specifically say it's the Jewish people. He just says it's someone in the kingdom, and there's this, this kingdom is so widespread, there's no reason for King Ahasuerus to even suspect he's talking about the Jews. It could have been anyone. I mean, he's the king. That's why he's got Haman and other officials to deal with this kind of stuff. He's like, okay, cool. Take care of it. So he doesn't specifically know it's the Jews that Haman is referring to. And I think if he would have known, and that gives a little bit of the slyness or craftiness to Haman, because I don't think it was revealed that Esther was a Jew yet, but I think, anyway, we won't go there. I'm, I'm circling back too much. But it's obvious that um, the king didn't realize that Esther was Jewish at this point, and that Haman's plan was to get rid of the Jews. And then if we go to verse 11, verse 311 in Esther, and the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with, do with them as seems good to you. So again, I don't think he was aware that Haman was specifically targeting the Jews. And there's really no reason for him to. So I think that explains why he specifically referred to Mordecai as a Jew, even though he had given Haman the okay to, to wipe them out. So let's get back to verse 13 and let's close out the chapter. Verse 13, when Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, oh, it's okay, baby, it's okay, it'll all work out. No, 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 that's not what they said. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but you will surely fall before him. Gee, thanks, honey. I thought you were a girl after my own heart. What's up with this? Now you're, you're turning the tables on me a little bit. I don't, I don't understand. But you know, the, 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 um, the Persian people were very superstitious and as they start seeing these signs and omens that Haman's plans are already starting to fall apart, they're gonna 
turn on him in a heartbeat. And I found it interesting. This kind of reminded me of um, a little bit of Job's wife, or just, just curse God and die. So um, careful, wives. You, you have our hearts in your hands. Verse 14, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. And I'm pretty sure he probably didn't want to go eat at all. He's probably like, I don't have an appetite. This is not going to be fun. So that's where we'll end tonight. And I think it's going to be a couple of weeks before we get back to Esther. So um, let's read ahead. I have to wait. Um, let's let's um, close in a uh, prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do love you, praise you. Uh, we thank you for your divine providence that you are in the inner workings of everything, that your thoughts are as the sand on the seashore toward us. And Lord, I just, um, I thank you that you want to be in the details and that you are always working for us and on our behalf. And that Lord, um, I just pray that you will give us patience and endurance to wait upon you, your perfect timing. And Lord, I pray that as we leave here tonight, that we will get safely back to our earthly homes that you have given us. And that, Lord, the camping trip will go well, that they'll have great weather, and that um, we will be able to come on Sunday, those of us who aren't camping, and, and see what Victor says on Sunday. And I ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.